From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony Perkins today. It's my pleasure to do so. So glad that you have chosen to spend some time with us. You can find the show, as a reminder, at TonyPerkins.com, and you can find Tony on Gab at Tony underscore Perkins. We hope you'll do that. Also, want to remind you that this week is a big week for supporters of Family Research Council. You can have your contributions, your gifts of support quadrupled between now and Friday at 10 a.m., and we hope that you will take advantage of this opportunity, and what you need to do is text to us text a call actually that's let's call 800-225-4008 to donate now and have your gift quadrupled between now and friday again the number is 800-225-4008 and help us stand for faith family and freedom now today on the program uh, a lot happening Presently, we're going to talk about the uh, the vote on Rachel Levine, who is uh, just as well known for being a man who believes he is a woman as he is for sending a bunch of people with COVID into nursing homes in Pennsylvania. Um, but he is in the process of having a vote um, that when we have gone under air, that vote is, is taking place. We're going to talk about that, why that matters. We're also going to go to Arkansas and talk about the SAFE Act and the sponsor of that, which is an effort to protect the uh, Utes of Arkansas from uh, surgeries that would uh, change their gender in really damaging ways. And then we'll we'll continue on that subject at the end, go to South Dakota, uh, the continuing saga of Governor Noam in South Dakota when it comes to protecting women's sports. Will she or won't she and why not? Uh, we're going to talk to Kristen Wagner, who's the general counsel, Council of the Alliance Defending Freedom about that. But first, a hearing that happened today in the House Armed Services Committee on Extremism in the Armed Forces. They heard from experts about extremism in the military, and one of those witnesses was Mike Barry, who is the Deputy General Counsel and Director of Military Affairs for First Liberty Institute, who joins me now. Mike, great to have you. That's great to be on with you, Joseph. Well, thrilled to talk to you. Um, what did you learn from the hearing today? What was your experience? You uh, you had the chance to give some input. What was your takeaway? Well, I, I went into the hearing not entirely sure what to expect. Um, uh, I, you know, this was a hearing actually before the House Armed Services Committee in full. So it was actually a, a fairly crowded house, although most of the members had to appear remotely. Um and they had a lot of questions about, you know, really, hey, what's the scope of the problem? How bad is the problem of extremism in the military? And I think one of the big takeaways is there really isn't a lot of data on, you know, uh, how many extremists are there in the Department of Defense or uh, how many arrests or prosecutions have been made for extremism. So I, I think that's really the starting point is identifying the scope of the problem. And once we identify how big the problem is, then we can start coming up with solutions. What we don't want to do is get that reversed in order. Sure. That seems to beg a question. If there, is, if there isn't really much data suggesting or not suggesting an increase, why is this hearing happening now? What prompted this if they aren't collecting data suggesting this is becoming a problem? 
Well, I made the point, and I and I don't I don't recall hearing any disagreement with my point that the any effort to eradicate true extremists from our military um, should be supported. Right? There's no room for true extremists, and by true extremists, the definition that I offered uh, was anyone who uses, threatens, or advocates violence in order to accomplish their objectives. Uh, the only people we should u- be using, threatening, or advocating violence against is the enemies of the United States of America, and so. Um, you know, and I, again, I didn't get any disagreement on that. So, in terms of why the need to hold this hearing, I mean, honestly, I suspect it might be because the the anecdotal evidence, the anecdotal cases that we hear about, get so much attention from the media that it makes the the, the problem sound like it's this this widespread systemic issue within the military. When, you know, ha- having been on active duty myself, I can tell you. You know, even one instance is one too many, but it's not it's not widespread. And I'm, let's let's talk about your service. And we do thank you for your service to our country and in in uniform and now in court and in, in today in on the Capitol Hill. But based on your experience, what you know about the military, do you see reasons to think that? extremism in the military is growing is this an increasing problem even anecdotally if we're not if we're not uh, gathering the data well look, you don't need to take my word for it the secretary of defense himself secretary austin said 99.9 percent of the people serving in our military are good honorable people who who believe in the country believe in the oath and believe in the constitution and i agree happen to agree with the secretary of defense on that and so i you know I was really there to provide a, a warning, a dire warning to the Armed Services Committee and to the Congress that, look, if you want to eradicate extremism from the military, that is a laudable goal. Nobody's going to you know, dispute that. But we have to be very careful not to trample upon the First Amendment rights of our service members. Now, that's an issue that at First Liberty Institute we have been been keeping an eye on, and we actually have – you know, real cases that we can point to to, to, to show that our service members are, are at risk of having their First Amendment rights stripped away in the name of political correctness. And that's something we have to guard against. Well, Mike, I, I want to play. You are not the only one at this hearing today. And, and we've got a couple clips because the Southern Poverty Law Center was there, there as well. And I want to touch briefly on their involvement and, and if and why that would be relevant. Uh, but I'm going to play something for you and then let you comment. We identify people with our pay group list based on what they say and what they do. I want to make it 100 percent clear we are not designating the Southern Poverty Law Center as being in charge of deciding what to do about extremism in the military. Now, that, that first clip was Lisa Brooks, who is from the Southern Poverty Law Center, and then you heard uh, Representative Smith making the point that they are not running this. Why is SPLC, why are they relevant to this conversation, and, and what was their role today? Well, my understanding is that, that Ms. Brooks was Ms. Brooks was invited because for many years the Southern Poverty Law Center has attempted to to track and record instances of of, of violence and hate and extremism. Uh, and I think you know while you know certainly we we may disagree with the results um, and and even methodologies, uh, I, you know I was glad to hear Chairman Smith say that they are not. You know, sort of outsourcing, right? Uh, this effort to to an outside group. Um, I don't think that would be appropriate. I think this should be handled by Congress, by the Department of Defense, 
And the starting point is let's come up with a good definition for what we mean by extremism. Whether they want to go with the definition that I offered or not, uh, that's, for, that's for Congress to decide. Uh, I think the definition I offered is a good one. I think it's one that has a strong basis in the law and the case laws that the Supreme Court has handed down and in our current policies and regulations. So let's start there. Um, but in terms of you know why the, the SPLC was invited, I mean, I suspect that there are still many people in both in Congress and in government who still look to them as a as a credible source of authority. So I was I was I was pleased to hear the chairman say that. Well, Mike Berry, Deputy General Counsel uh, and Director of Military Affairs for First Liberty, thanks so much for taking the time and thanks for being there in Washington, uh, D.C. today on all of our behalf. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are glad to have you. And now we're going to bring in another uh, thinker and writer about this subject. Tyler O'Neill has been thinking a lot about the military and kind of what's happening there. Senior editor of PJ Media, also the author of Making Hate Pay, the Corruption of of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Tyler, welcome to the program. Hey, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you, and I hope you heard that conversation a little bit. I don't know if we want to start with the Southern Poverty Law Center with you, but what is what is the significance of what happened today? Yeah, no, I mean, I find it very troubling that the Democrats on this committee decided to invite the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, to testify on this hearing. I mean, Lucia Brooks uh, did a great job of appearing as uh, as neutral as she could, But it's very telling that question after question brought up the fact that the SPLC branded Ben Carson an extremist. The SPLC called the American uh, College of Pediatricians a hate group. The SPLC attacked, you know, the Family Research Council. And there was, uh, need I say it uh, for the millionth time, there was a terrorist attack, an attempted terrorist attack in 2012. The shooter targeted FRC for this very reason, because of the SPLC's claim. And, of course, the SPLC condemned it, as, as of course, they would. But they haven't taken FRC off the list, and they continue to push this narrative that there is this hate that they always have been monitoring since, you know, they, they started monitoring the KKK. And now, since 20, the 2010s, they've been monitoring mainstream conservative Christian organizations. And I, I found it fascinating that Brooks went up there and she had to say, um, this is a direct quote from her. Uh, she said that her organization is not anti-Christian at all. Well, uh, the, the fact that you have to say that um, might be a, a statement on its own, isn't it? Yes, Exactly. Well, l- let me ask you another question, because you've been writing on this subject this week, and, and you talked about your concerns about the stand-down trainings that are happening in the military uh, concurrent to these hearings going on in Congress. What are these stand-down trainings, and, and why do you have a problem with them? Yeah, so what, in the wake of you know the Capitol riot, the Biden administration, the Secretary of Defense, issued a military-wide stand-down order. Now, this doesn't mean the entire military, you know, stops working for a period of time. What it means is that in in different parts of the military, step-by-step, you know, different branches at different times, they hold these trainings, uh, you know, these events to talk about rooting out extremism. 
And a lot of the definitions of extremism are very easy to twist and weaponize. Uh, and they've they've been telling people, you know, I, I looked at the the training for the U.S. Marine Corps uh, last night. And in in that training, they explicitly ask Marines to keep an eye out for their other Marines. And if they're ever engaging in domestic, you know, in that. Uh, an extremist activity, they should report them. And the way that extremism is defined is so broad, it includes advocating against constitutional rights. And of course, if you look at the way that uh, the Supreme Court, I think wrongly, ruled in Bostock v. Clayton County, if anybody says that transgender you know, women, biological males who identify as women, should not be able to compete in women's sports, uh, then that arguably falls under the extremely broad definition of extremism they have here, and that person could face consequences. And the concern there, of course, is that you're creating an ideological test for people who serve in the military, which is not good for the military, and it's not good for us, is it? No, and it sends a message of weakness to China. Well, Tyler O'Neill, senior editor at PJ Media, thank you so much for your time uh, and your efforts on keep in keeping all of us alert on this. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tyler. Yeah, my pleasure. And, and so what we do have to continue to track there on this military story is whether Congress is looking into this as a good faith effort to deal with a real problem or an effort to create a narrative that people who disagree with us politically are dangerous. We will continue to track that story. But coming up after the break, the Senate has voted, we think, to confirm Rachel Levine as the next HHS Assistant Secretary. What does that mean? We'll discuss it all after the break. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, 
Go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins today. As we speak, the Senate is voting on the confirmation of Rachel Levine to be the next assistant HHS secretary. What does this all mean? As of a few minutes, a couple minutes ago, the last update I had was 45 to vote yes, 37 to vote no. Levine then would need five more votes for confirmation. It is expected to happen. What does this mean for HHS? What does this mean for us? To discuss it is Roger Severino, who is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, but recently served at HHS under President Trump. Roger, welcome to the program. Glad to be back. Well, Roger, tell us what uh, this confirmation means for this agency and for Americans who are just watching this. It is a scary time in American history. The question is, will ideology be put ahead of science? Biden said he's going to be listening to the scientists, listening to the science. We've heard this so many times. But Dr. Levine, I fear, is going to put a transgender ideology first ahead of biological realities, which, of course, matter tremendously when it comes to the practice of medicine, the advancement of science. I dealt with this issue extensively when I was at HHS. We rolled back a transgender mandate under Obamacare. We examined all the science. HHS itself has said that it's not going to issue a national coverage determination for sex reassignment surgeries because the data is not in. It's not enough to support it. Yet I'm afraid that Dr. Levine will come in with an agenda to start radicalizing the practice of medicine to pursue this ideology that's not supported by sufficient science. Does Dr. Levine have a history? Uh, we know that his own story of changing genders, but is there a history there of activism while in public service on these issues? Oh, most certainly. So when I was uh, examining this question of what to do with the transgender mandate under Obama, I actually invited the leading names in transgender medicine. That included Dr. Rachel Levine. And we met at HHS. I heard that same presentation that Levine offered Senator Paul at the hearing when being questioned about what about cross-sex hormones and surgery on minors. Uh, the answer was, oh, it's a complicated issue. issue. I'll give you a briefing, Senator Paul. I had that briefing when I was at HHS. I heard it directly. And the answer was, yes, 
yes, minors should be given cross-sex hormones and surgery when they have gender dysphoria. Uh, this should come as no surprise to anybody that Dr. Levine would take this position. The activism run deep. Um, it was, I think, uh, evasive to the point of being disingenuous not to answer Senator Paul when asked directly, when I knew what the answer was because I heard it uh, when the shoe was out of the foot and those doctors wanted to keep the Obama transgender mandate in place. Uh, this is scary times when we're going to see this push, especially when it comes to minor children, 12 to 18, to have radical surgeries that will sterilize them, and you cannot turn back. And I'm afraid that's where HHS may be going if Levine gets confirmed. I, I think that's important to highlight this point, the, the evasiveness. And I want to see, Bobby, maybe you can uh, set up clip number three. Um, but this is, the, th- this is the response in this exchange. I'm not going to play the – we don't have time to play the whole question, the, the whole statement from Senator Paul. But this is Levine's response to, uh, to Senator Paul's question about whether children should be allowed to do this. Let's listen. Transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field. Um, with robust research and uh, standards of care that have been developed. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of Health, I would look forward to working with you and your office and coming to your office and discussing the particulars of the standards of care for transgender mm-hmm. medicine. So, Roger, are you of the position that Levine has a stronger position, a, a clearer position on the issue than, oh, than yeah. we saw there? I heard it directly. When I asked the question, what about uh, children and minors and adolescents? And we had this very respectful discussion on what is the state of the treatments. And yes, indeed, all the doctors there, including Levine, affirmed that it is indicated for minors, um, adolescents, that you could do these permanent cross-sex hormones that, that deepen the person's voice if you're female, that start uh, changing the secondary sex characteristics. Uh, and could lead to sterility, and including permanent surgeries. Now, of course, everybody needs to be treated with respect and with dignity. Everybody needs to be shown kindness and compassion. The question is, is there only one possible answer to this question? That it's, it's, uh, you go running downhill towards permanent surgeries and hormones, even sometimes against the wishes of the parents? I think that's, that's a wrong choice for public policy and certainly not for health care. And I'm afraid with Levine, that's the direction we're going. Yeah, in, in, the, in the next segment, we're actually going to speak to a state lawmaker from Arkansas who is sponsoring legislation to prevent that from happening for minors. But, Roger, based on your experience in HHS, given what you know and what you're telling us about Levine's history and in the likelihood that this will be a priority, what what power will he have to actually affect policy around the country? What changes could be made mm-hmm. from within HHS that could, that would see this become more common? Oh, well, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health, this is the position. It's effectively the top doctor. And you've heard the Surgeon General. Surgeon General is the top doctor that's public-facing, public advocacy. This is the, the top doctor that really has the biggest impact on the programs and what is getting funded. Uh, the Office of Women's Health is under the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health and of Youth and Adolescent Health as well. Uh, these are the programs where so much federal money goes towards, and it should be driven by science, not by ideology. Imagine what does it mean to have the head of the Office of Women's Health uh, be influenced by a notion that it doesn't really matter what your biology is. 
that men could actually get pregnant, which is in fact standard now as transgender ideology. Uh, if you identify as male, you can still get pregnant. I mean, what did that do to the practice of medicine? No, you you make a really good point, and and I we don't have time to get it, but the implications for those who would disagree with this within the agency and within the country are also things that that we have a lot of concern about. But Roger Severino, thank you so much for taking your time. I know we will call on you again on this important subject. Thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Stay with us because we're going to stay on this issue of minors undergoing gender transition. And we're going to go to the great state of Arkansas to talk to Representative Robin Lundstrom about what she's doing there. Coming up after the break. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins. And here is your reminder that your contributions to FRC before Friday at 10 a.m. will be quadrupled. This week during our Stand Today Together campaign, we hope you'll call 1-800-225-4008 and take advantage of that. Again, 800-225-4008 to have your gift quadrupled. Right now, the Arkansas Senate is considering HB 1570, the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Safe Act, 
which protects children who experience distress about their biological sex from dangerous drugs and irreversible surgeries on the unscientific theory that they were born in the, quote, wrong body. The bill moved out of committee Monday night and is expected to meet some resistance in the coming days. With me now to talk about this bill is its sponsor, Representative Robin Lundstrom. Representative Lundstrom, welcome to Washington Watch. Hello. Good to, good to hear your voice. Well, it's good to speak with you again, and great to see you, uh, I guess, a couple weeks ago now. It's been in Arkansas when we were working on this together. Now, tell people um, what your bill does. I introduced it a little bit, but why you've gotten to the point of of sponsoring this bill. Well, this bill is a very tightly crafted bill that basically says that children under the age of 18 cannot have sex change surgery or chemical or um, chemical castration, basically, but it it very tightly says you can't do this to children. Um, we don't allow children to have um, illegal drugs. We don't have allow children to smoke or drink. This bill protects the ch- protects the children of Arkansas from these type of procedures and allows them to get to be eighteen where they can make adult decisions, and it protects those children. Or at least we hope it will protect those children, and we hope the bill passes. What kind of response is it getting so far in the legislature? It's been great. Um, The legislature has really stepped up. In the House, it passed by 70 votes, and um, now it's gone to the Senate committee, and it passed overwhelmingly in the Senate committee. Um, The bill also allows for counseling. Um, It doesn't deny any health procedures or anything like that. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of people have tried to make it into something that it's not. But I'm really thankful that members have stepped and looked at the bill and read the bill, and the bill was very well done. Uh, I can't take credit for it. It's a group effort. And I'm I'm excited. I, I hope it passes. We'll see. Well, we're excited, and, and we're thankful that you're doing it because we know that when you when you step out on something like this, and we're actually we're gonna we're gonna talk about what's going on with Governor Noem in in South Dakota in in the next mm. segment. And, and when you step out yeah. on an issue like this, these really have become third rail issues for so many politicians, and, and many don't want to uh, to touch this stuff. So we commend you for your courage in not only being willing to touch it, but being willing to lead and getting others to follow you in in that effort but what kind of a response are you getting from your constituents when you talk about this my constituents have had my back um they have been wonderful um there have been groups that don't like the bill and they have been very vocal i wish they would read the bill and understand that we're not blocking counseling um that this is this is meant to protect children and i think if they would look into it a little bit deeper, they might be less aggressive um, and less vicious about it. But that's part of, as, as you said, stepping out. But I'm not the only one. There's There are other legislators that are stepping out and running difficult bills, so I can't pat myself on the back. There are a lot of legislators, in, and I'm not the only state that other legislators are stepping out and also willing to take the lead in, in doing this type of legislation so I'm thankful that I have groups like Family Council that's, that's stepped up and they're helping, and um, I'm very appreciative of that. 
Well, and that that's a that's a great point. And, and for those who are listening to understand this, that this not only takes you as a legislator, but the family council there in Arkansas, as well as other legislators around the state who communicate together. And, and Robin, maybe you can t- tell me this, because last year there were 19 bills like this, not all identical, but similar subject that ran in various state legislatures. This year, 18 states have introduced a, a related similar bill do you guys communicate with each other across state boundaries on what you're doing some um we hear about things that are going on in other states i've actually reached i'm a republican and i reached out to a democrat in um, williamsburg and um just asked him to give me a shout and wanted to encourage him because he was running a similar bill so this this type of bill though crosses party lines this isn't about republican or democrat it's about protecting children and so I reached out to him and said, is there anything I can do to help you? This is, this is important. So I, I'm excited to do something like that. It's, it's nice to cross party lines and say this isn't about being a Republican or Democrat. Yeah. You make a good point. This really is. Polling shows this repeatedly in, in the coalitions of groups that come together across the political spectrum on behalf of this issue really prove the point that you've made there, that this is not a left-right issue. This is a uh, you know science uh, versus you know science fiction kind of truth versus reality mm-hmm. issue in, in so many ways. Uh, but we thank you for this. Very quickly, you can hear the music, but we got about 45 seconds. Tell me... Um, do you expect this to be successful in Arkansas? I hope so. I, I think it's got a really good chance of being successful. I think if people pull together and realize this is about protecting children and keeping them from suicide and all the bad things that can happen to them, and let them get to be adults, a lot of good things can happen. Well, Representative Robin Lundstrom from Arkansas, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your courage. Really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we are going to continue this conversation at the state legislative level. We are going to talk about Governor Christy Noem in South Dakota. What is she doing? She continues to dig in her heels, so it seems. We're going to talk to Kristen Wagner from the Alliance Defensing Freedom. All about it. You don't want to miss it. After the break. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, 
because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins again today in South Dakota. We talked about this yesterday, and this is the story that just doesn't seem to be going away because Governor Christy Noem is continuing to dig in her heels on this, uh, the bill that would protect women's sports. And she's having difficulty trying to explain a position to people who used to be in her corner on a lot of issues because she made statements saying, yeah, I'm going to support this. And then once the bill got to her desk, she has found a variety of reasons not to. What in the world is happening in South Dakota? We're going to talk about this with Kristen Wagner, who is the general counsel at just one of the best organizations there is in America, Alliance Defensing, Defending Freedom. Excuse me, Kristen, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me, Joseph. Well, we are glad to have you, and I'd, li- I'd love your thoughts on, uh, on, on what's going on in South Dakota. It seems as much as it's about policy, it is now about politics. What do you think is happening? <laughs> well, I agree with you, and politics isn't something that ADF usually gets involved in because we're about law and policy, but when we see it being bungled this badly, we feel an obligation to speak out. Um, governor Nome has unfortunately now become – Uh, the first governor in the United States to eliminate new protections for college female athletes, gutting the ability for all women and girls to have any recourse against policies in women's sports that would allow men to compete in on women's teams. Now, she's made a variety of statements as to why she's doing this. I'm going to play part one of those explanations here, and then I want to ask you to respond to this. Sure. If the NCAA did take action against the state of South Dakota, we could sue them. I know we could do that. But these respected legal scholars inform me we would likely lose at that level facing the court circumstances that we have in front of us. So we could pass a law, then we could get punished, 
then we could face expensive litigation at taxpayer expense, and then we could lose. We'd have nothing but a participation trophy to, be, to show for it. Or we could take a different path entirely. Well, Kristen, Governor Noem says that these respected legal experts have told her that she's going to lose in court if she signs this bill. Now, you are a respected legal expert, a multiple-time <laughs> winner at the Supreme Court. So what say you about this? Is she correct that this is just a legal loser? No, and it's hard to keep up with the explanation she's giving for the bad decision that has been made. You know, she began by justifying her actions and saying, well, the NCAA has a policy and, you know, I'm just trying to abide by the NCAA's requirements. Well, then when we smoke that out and the NCAA has no policy that requires men to compete on women's teams, then, you know, the, the bar was moved to something else. And the, there is no conservative, respected legal scholar that would ever suggest that the law requires men to compete on women's teams. In fact, federal law would say the opposite. But states have the right to be able to make clear in their states that fair play should be the name of the game. And unfortunately, this does require a governor to exercise real leadership, and sometimes that means taking some heat and making some hard decisions. But that's what's right for girls and women. They should be given equal opportunities not and not have their officials pander to woke corporate ideology, which is exactly what's happening here. Well, and, and the leadership component of this is one that's strange because she had previously made some very strong and good statements on this. And even as she's trying to backtrack on this, she's still saying she's on our side of this issue. So what's the difference between her and the governors of Idaho and Mississippi who have already passed this? And we know governors of other states who will pass this this year. What do you think is the difference? Courage. I, I got to tell you, Joseph, I, I think that's what it is. It is it is understanding that if we continue to cave to Amazon and continue to cave to woke corporatism, we are losing our rights. We're losing opportunities for women and girls to be able to compete on a fair playing field. And this bullying, you stand up to bullies. Real leadership does that. Also, I think one of the things that she said that's been misleading is the idea that she's le going to lead some sort of coalition. There already is a broad coalition that actually is, has the left and the right on it, which they're made up of athletes, legislators, other governors, other um, attorneys general. In fact, 14 different state attorney generals have signed a brief in support of the Idaho law. So we want to have her a part of this movement, but right. it has to do more than just give mere lip service. And, and you make a, a good point there. I think one that's worth driving home is in in her explanation, she has wanted she's claimed to start this defend Title IX now initiative, and she says it's a more effective way of defending women's <laughs> sports. Is this is this actually a thing? Is there anybody in this initiative with her? Is this just something that got thrown together this week because she want she wants to look like she's still on our side? Do you know anything about this? I do. The website for her new coalition went up 24 hours before her press conference. Her press conference came out after it was exposed that there is no NCAA policy that requires her to take this position. So this is about repairing political 
you know, repairing damage to one's political reputation and credibility. And it's it's smoke and mirrors. It's political theater. Um, follow the lead of the Idaho and Mississippi governors. Follow the lead of the 14 state attorney generals, who also are respected legal scholars, and have signed on to a brief saying that these provisions protect women and girls and that they follow federal law and that they're appropriate and constitutional. So I think there's a lot of people she can join in a coalition that's already going. Uh, So, you know, reinventing the wheel or coming late to the game and and pretending that you're the coach, it it shouldn't work. That's not leadership. Yeah, I think you're right there. And and understanding uh, for a lot of people who are not involved in the legislative process, kind of the lawmaking process, these bills don't just come up over the weekend. They don't just appear out of the ether because somebody sat down at their computer on Saturday morning and and wrote something. These take months and years of deliberation, these pieces of legislation. So what's going on in South Dakota is not something that somebody just came up with. There has been this movement. And and to your point, the idea that this initiative got put together 24 hours before her initiative to announce it was launched is an indication that that is likely much more political theater than it is a substantive effort to address the issue because, frankly, that coalition had been put together a long time before. Now, Kristen, she talks about these respected legal experts that she is consulting with who are giving this advice. Do you have any sense of who that would be and who she is listening to? You know, I'm not even going to speculate on that. I think it's interesting that no one has dared to, you know, she hasn't revealed any of those names. Um, And the only people litigating in this area um, are ADF attorneys, and we certainly weren't consulted. We're representing high school and collegiate athletes uh, in two different lawsuits and have been litigating and working in courts and legislatures for several years on these issues. Um, Your listeners could also go to SaveWomenSports.com to see um, a great example of the coalition that's been created, and it also details how many different states are considering these bills right now. Um, So there's no question that she made a critical mistake by pandering to to Amazon and the NCAA and thought she could soothe conservatives with 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 words, empty words. And she still has the opportunity to sign this bill, though. And so we're hoping that she will and join the coalition to stand up to the NCAA. But you don't cave to a bully. You, You sign the bill. You join the coalition. And we move forward together. I think you're right, and, and honestly, I think um, what's happening here, and we, we've seen on, on these issues in the last decade, things that have happened in Arizona, even when, when Vice President Pence was the governor of Indiana, and he famously caved on some things that were important to us. Mm-hmm. One thing that I do think the Trump administration did was instill something of a, 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 a spine on, on conservatives and, and kind of set this example that you don't have to cave and that's not the best way to deal with bullies because you don't win when you do. Now, Kristen, what do you think is going to be the outcome of this situation in South Dakota? It's it's difficult to say. I know that the South Dakota legislators passed that bill overwhelmingly, that it was a work in process, and that the Governor Nome came out and said she was going to sign it just two weeks ago. So, you know, not only 
are they deeply disturbed by what she did in terms of removing any protections for college athletes, removing any right of girls in K through 12 to be able to have any remedy if their rights are violated, but she used what's called this form and style veto in what most of those legislators believe to be an unconstitutional manner. So it's there is concerned a much as much about the substance of this bill, but also about how she did it because she is not a policymaker and she's acting like one in this instance. And, and, and she claims to be doing this in the effort to avoid litigation when, in fact, the way she did it might, in fact, get her uh, plenty of litigation. Kristen Wagner, General Counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, thank you so much. And I will say on behalf of my three daughters who are all athletes, thank you for your efforts on their behalf. Well, thank you. It's on behalf of my daughter as well, Joseph. So I join you in that. I appreciate it very much, Kristen. Thank you for your time. Bye. And in, in the, the, the thing I just keep missing in this conversation is she's the governor of South Dakota, and there are a few states where you would have broader public support than this. But she continues to um, want to have her cake and eat it too. Um, many other, you know, cliched ways we could refer to this situation. But how should we be responding to this? And, and we're going to now bring in Travis Weber, who is the vice president, senior vice president for policy and government affairs at Family Research Council. Uh, Travis, as you continue to follow the story, I know we talked about this already this week. How is How are your thoughts evolving as you track this story? Yeah, I mean, Joseph, I, I think there are a number of angles here as we continue to track this, I think, you know, most significantly, I think it's, you know, what's so crucial for um, uh, in the public to, to have happen and for folks who are watching this situation to see is, is Governor Nome actually engaging with the other side and talking to the folks who, who know this issue, not hearing from the NCAA, the Chamber of Commerce, big business and entities that do not have the interest of social conservatives and many of the people from South Dakota at heart. Um, you know, I think if Governor Nome was truly talking with the folks who know these issues, understand these issues, uh, we just heard from Alliance Defending Freedom, we at FRC handle these issues. There are other groups um, as well who, who, are, who are navigating this space. If she would talk to those folks, um, we would welcome that. We'd welcome engaging with her on how to actually protect women who are being forced to compete against biological men in sporting competitions and um, have a substantive discussion about that. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the way things are going here, but she can still engage. She can still respond to the invitation to look at this issue with the folks who are concerned about it. But unfortunately, um, you know, this seems to be taking a different track this week. Do you have any insight into who it is that she continues to talk with? We just asked Kristen that question, and, and she didn't know who she's getting her advice from. Do you have any sense of uh, of who she's talking to? Because she has to be talking about this, because this is a national news story. So this has to be dominating her life at this point. Who is she getting advice from? Yeah, no, it is a good question. I mean, we we don't know for sure. I mean, she 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 has referenced legal experts, and this you know she she's used the word and the term you know legal experts that she's been talking to. We don't know who those are. We haven't seen their reasoning, their legal reasoning, their their breakdown and analysis of the issues which 
have apparently, or at least she's claiming, Governor Noam is claiming, have led her to take the position she's taking here in terms of saying this this bill will not hold up, it'll draw a challenge, it won't actually protect uh, women. You know, I think we need to see what's going on underneath the hood in terms of the analysis here and uh, what she's actually basing this position on. It doesn't line up with what else we see. You know, she has been um, she's suing to block a marijuana referendum in her state, uh, putting resources behind litigation in that case. She's called for a Pregnancy Non-Discrimination Act to be passed uh, in, on January 12th, and these have been sued in other states. And so mm-hmm. she's publicly taken positions where she has backed litigation and the resources of her state in litigation, apparently not afraid of litigation. And so for her to claim that that is a reason here that's causing her to pause, it just doesn't make sense. And we need a better explanation than that. So I would welcome, you know, an analysis or an examination of what's actually behind uh, the position she's taking. Well, Travis, you're you're an attorney, but you also work in the political world of Washington, D.C., and so you understand that this is not merely a policy or a legal discussion. This is being done in a, in a political context, and, and as somebody who everyone thinks has political ambitions, what do you think is her path forward? How does she get out of this in a way that isn't totally lethal to her political career? Yeah, I mean, I think she needs to reverse course and engage with the social conservative base, the social conservative uh, base of the Republican Party who is behind these bills um, and and stand up to the NCAA. Uh, I mean, her posture or, or, or claim to that she's standing up to them now doesn't doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense uh, if she would engage with supporters of these bills. I think that would go a long way to actually dealing with the political realities where right now she is upsetting the social conservative uh, base. She's not really pleasing anyone on the other side of these bills. And so I don't really see what this is getting her. I think the national dynamics are significant. Mississippi has passed one of these. The governor signed it. Tennessee stands poised to sign it. We have bills moving elsewhere that governors are, we believe, are going to do the right thing on, like in Arkansas. And so I think she needs to reverse course and engage with uh, the supporters of these bills. Travis Weber, Senior VP for Policy and Government Affairs, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for joining us today. We do appreciate it. Continue to pray. Continue to pay attention. Do what you can. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.